starting in just another week for me, my last semester there. But it was so good to visit over the Christmas time and to see many of you and to, and to talk with you and spend some time with you and to preach the word with you or preach the word to you. But we're back in the word this morning and we're continuing through the book of Exodus. We're looking at the Ten Commandments today. Recall what we've seen in the book of Exodus so far. We've seen God fulfill his promise to Abraham by multiplying, protecting, and delivering his people, the seed of Abraham, from out of Egypt. And God sent mighty plagues to accomplish this deliverance, culminating in that deliverance at the Reed Sea. But recall, how did Israel respond to all of these amazing and gracious displays of God's power? Was it with ongoing trust and obedience? Well, when they went into the wilderness, what did we see? We saw complaining. We saw lack of trust in God. They complained about food. They complained about water. They complained about their leaders. And these, as we saw, were not just complaints against Moses and Aaron, but they were complaints against God, as all complaining really is. Yet God graciously and patiently provided for his people and gave them what they were complaining about. God was testing his people, and as they failed the tests, and as he graciously provided in response, they were to learn, and they were to repent. So then at this point in the book of Exodus, God has called out and brought out his people to be his own possession, but now he's going to give them his law, his rules. If they are to be a special people, then they must keep covenant with him. And these rules of the covenant, they start with the Ten Commandments. And we could spend a lot of time on the Ten Commandments. In fact, it would be really good if someone just did a whole series of sermons on the Ten Commandments. Of course, that's exactly what our pastor did this last year. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to those sermons, I recommend you go back and do so, because there's so much about the Ten Commandments we won't be able to cover today. But we will look to overview and summarize some important truths about all of the Ten Commandments. Oh, and by the way, if you're looking for that sermon series, if you missed it, it's on our website, calvaryem.org, under the series title, The Law of God. So what are we going to try to accomplish today? Well, we're going to examine the circumstances under which Israel received the Ten Commandments. We're going to examine the Ten Commandments themselves, and then we'll ask what is the purpose or what are the purposes of the Ten Commandments and really the rest of the rules of God, both at that time and for us today. Let's pray as we continue. Our God, your word is wonderful and it, it is a light to our paths. We need it. So open up your word to us today by your spirit. Apply it to our lives and our hearts and transform us. Help me to be able to explain it clearly and well. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your Bibles and open up to Exodus chapter 17. We're going to begin overviewing the circumstances under which Israel received the Ten Commandments. Now, it's important for us to do this contextual overview because depending on the movies or the paintings or the cartoons that you've seen portraying this event, because it is a famous event, you might have the wrong idea in your minds. So we need to recenter ourselves once again by listening to God's history. God's accurate history of this special event. Now, we left off last time in Exodus 17 with Israel complaining about the food and drink in the wilderness and God graciously and patiently providing. But in the second part of Exodus chapter 17, Israel has its first battle. 
a battle against some belligerent Amalekites. God gives Israel the victory, and he does so by the means of Moses' raised hands. And then in Exodus chapter 18, Israel receives a visit, or Moses receives a visit from his father-in-law Jethro. Jethro gives him some advice about delegation and the assigning of legal cases. And then in Exodus 19, so you can turn there now, at Exodus 19, Israel finally arrives at Mount Sinai. Now, let's actually read Exodus 19, 1 to 6. Exodus 19, 1 to 6, here's what it says. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God. And the Lord, that is Yahweh, called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now, we're just going to read through these. We don't have time to observe all the different details, but notice this is the beginning of their experience at Sinai. After this, Moses comes back from the mountain, and he reports God's words to the elders of Israel. They agree to keep the covenant of Yahweh. Moses returns to God on the mountain with their affirmation. God then warns Moses that no person or creature is to touch the mountain. If they do, they must be stoned or pierced through with arrows. God also tells Moses that the people must consecrate themselves for three days in preparation for hearing God himself speak from the mountain. By the way, don't miss that time detail in the beginning. It says that this takes place in the third month. And remember, Israel came out on the 14th, on the 14th day of the first month on the Passover. Now let's see what Exodus 19 verses 16 to 20 say as they get even closer to God speaking. So Exodus 19, verse 16 now. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, this is quite a scene. Now, could you imagine being yourself yourself at at this place when these things are happening. This smoking mountain, the thunder, the trumpet sound. You can understand why Israel was trembling. In the remainder of chapter 19, God sends Moses back down the mountain to warn the people one more time about approaching the mountain. And then in chapter 20, God himself speaks to all the people from the mountain, and he tells them his Ten Commandments. We're going to skip those for right now. 
We're still just getting the context. We'll come back to the Ten Commandments. But let's look at Israel's reaction to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 21. Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. The word says, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Now, after this, Moses again returns to the mountain. And in chapters 21, 22, and 23, God gives Moses various laws for, for the people of Israel to keep. And he affirms his promise to them that if they will keep his covenant, keep his laws, that he will give them the land of Canaan and bless them in many ways. Let's now read Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24 verses 3 to 8. Again, let's see how the people react. Moses is giving them the words of God. It says, Exodus 24, verses 3 to 8. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of Yahweh and all the ordinances. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to Yahweh. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. So multiple times now, the people have affirmed they will keep covenant with God. After this, something very strange and wonderful happens. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders, they travel partway up Mount Sinai, where they see God in a limited revelation. And they eat a covenant meal in his presence. We can't go through the description right now, but read it on your own. It's quite amazing. It's like a, 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 a sapphire platform or this, uh, this beautiful platform on which Yahweh is sitting. And they're right in his presence. So they had this meal. And then God calls Moses back to the mountain. And he tells Moses that God will give Moses tablets of stone with God's commandments on them. Thus, Moses begins his first 40-day stay on the mountain. Moses is on the mountain for 40 days. And during this stay, God gives Moses instructions for building a tabernacle, an ongoing dwelling place for God among his people. And these instructions for the tabernacle are recorded in Exodus 25 to 31. And we're not going to look at those right now. That'll be for a lesson. But Exodus 31, you can turn there. Exodus 31 concludes with a certain statement. Exodus 31, verse 18. Exodus 31, 18 says, speaking of God, when he had finished speaking with him, Moses, upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, 
tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Now, all this is very good and wonderful, but while Moses is on the mountain, during those first 40 days, something goes horribly wrong back in the camp of Israel. As you're familiar with this part of scripture, what does Israel do? Moses is away. They don't know where he is. And so what do they tell Aaron to do? Right, make us a God that's going to go before us. And so they build the golden calf. Now, this is, this is quite amazing because, as we just saw, they affirmed that they would keep covenant with Yahweh. And very, just so quickly, they are breaking that covenant. Now, this incident deserves its own lesson. And that's actually what we're going to come back to talk about next week. But just notice a few things about the golden calf incident as recorded in Exodus 32 and following. Israel is breaking covenant with God. And so Moses, when he comes back down, he takes the two tablets of the covenant and he shatters them before the people of Israel. It's a symbolic act. This is what you've done. At first, God tells Moses that he's going to destroy all of Israel for their sin. Now, remember, God has been totally patient with Israel up to this point. But now that they've affirmed they would keep covenant and they haven't, he says, I'm going to kill, I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to destroy them all. And I'll just restart with you, Moses. But Moses intercedes and he pleads with God. He says, don't do this for your own name's sake. And God relents, though Moses has to violently restore order among the people. And in Exodus 33, God says another very sad, or he gives another sad declaration. He says, I'm not going to travel with you anymore. You people are too sinful and rebellious. I can't go with you. But Moses intercedes again. And he pleads with God saying, God, if you don't go with us, we can't go up to the promised land. We need your presence. We need you to sustain us all the way. And God relents again. And he says, all right, I will travel with the people. He relents for Moses' sake, and he shows grace to the people. God then calls Moses back up to the mountain for another 40 days to, to receive a new set of tablets. And in the beginning of Exodus 34, that's where we have the incident where Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says, I will show it to you in a limited way. Now, all of that, again, is just overview to set the context. But I want to ask a few questions ab about it before we move on. These are kind of observations slash interpretation questions. So how much time passed between the exodus from Egypt and the receiving of the law on Mount Sinai? About a month and a half, maybe two months, because remember, it was the 14th of the first month that they left. And we're told it's in the third month that they received the law. Now, the date of Moses's reception of the law of God for Israel is, or the traditional date, is 50 days after Israel left Egypt. This then makes the receiving of the law 50 days after Passover, which is the same date as Israel's Feast of Weeks, one of the festivals that Israel was later required to keep. And in the, in the New Testament, this feast is known by a different name. Fifty days after the Passover, you have Pentecost. And you can see the, the penta root in there, signifying 50. Now, this was a short time after they're coming out of the Exodus, but where did these all take place? It's at Mount Sinai. 
This mountain is also called Mount Horeb in the scriptures. It appears to be one of the mountains in the Sinai Peninsula in between Egypt and Israel. The exact location and identity of this mountain are unknown, though there are several good candidates today for which one would be the Mount Sinai. But one other question. When the Israelites were worshiping the golden calf as, as the God that delivered them from Egypt, it wasn't a different God. They said, this is Yahweh. Why should they have known that it was wrong to worship an idol such as this? Right, right. That's one aspect of it. They've already seen the Egyptian gods, idol, idols, and false gods judged. So that should have told them something. Why else? It's right there in the Ten Commandments. He says, you'll have no other God before me and don't make an image. Don't make an image. And we'll talk about this more in just a second. But don't make an image of anything you see on the earth. And what do they make? They make a cow. A golden calf. And they say, this is Yahweh. Actually, in a section we didn't even read in the latter part of Exodus 20, God specifically says again, don't make an idol out of silver or gold. And they said, this is what we'll do. All right, God, you say it, we'll do it. Yet they don't. So soon, they break covenant with Yahweh. Now let's actually look at the Ten Commandments. Look at the Ten Commandments themselves. Now again, we're still going to have to kind of move quickly through them, but we want to note each one of the commandments and make a few observations about them because we're going to ask some questions about them afterwards. So look at Exodus 20 again. Exodus 20 verses 1 to 17. What are the commands that God spoke to all Israel? Starting in verse 1, here's what it says. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So the first commandment is to love and serve God only. No other gods. No one equal to God. No one greater than God. And notice even in this first command, before God gives the command, he reminds Israel who he is. He says, I am Yahweh, your God, the one who powerfully delivered you from Egypt. Now look at the second command, verses four to six. God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the second commandment is not to make or worship any idol, not only of false gods, but also of the true God who cannot be captured his glory cannot be represented properly in any image anything that man can fashion now god specifically warns them in this command notice not to create images of deities based on what they see in heaven or on earth or in the waters of the earth and notice god also gives a reason for this command what's the reason because i am a jealous god 
And then he also refers to his judgment. Because I am jealous, I will repay with wickedness, or I will repay those who follow wickedness with powerful judgment, even unto the third and fourth generation. But for those who love me and follow me, obey me, I will show them blessing and kindness. So God's jealousy is wrapped up in this command, don't make an idol. Now notice the third command in verse 7. He says, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. The third command is not to show disrespect to God's name. To take God's name in vain is to use God's name uselessly or deceitfully. Now, how might someone take God's name in vain or speak God's name in vain? This is something we see around us all the time today, isn't it? Many people use God's name or things related to God as a curse or as a joke. That would qualify as taking God's name in vain. But also another way, and this would be more common in Israel's time, but still common today, it would be vain for those to swear rashly or falsely by God's name. I don't hear it as much these days, but I used to hear it growing up. Oh, I swear to God. And somebody will say that to try and make you believe them, but sometimes they weren't telling the truth. That would be taking God's name in vain. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but isn't it so sad that so many of the curse words of our society and other societies, they are misuses of God's name and what's related to him. People say, OMG, and they refer to God, Jesus, Christ, damn, hell, or refer to things as holy that aren't holy. All of this cheapens God's name. And notice the warning God gives, though, to those who cheapen his name. He says he will not hold them guiltless. They will be judged. If you treat God's name flippantly, if you treat the things related to him with contempt, God will judge you. And doesn't this sound like what Jesus says in the New Testament? Perhaps you're reminded of Matthew 12, verses 26 to 37. But I'll just read verses 36 and 37. In Matthew 12, 36 and 37, Jesus says, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You know, most people who, who use God's name as a curse, they don't even think about it. But God says, those careless words I will hold you to account for. This is the third commandment given to Israel. Now notice the fourth. Verses 8 to 11, God says, Remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Yahweh your God. In it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the fourth command is to keep the Sabbath by resting on, doing no work. Now, which day of the week was the Sabbath for the Jews? The seventh day, what would be our Saturday. And what is the basis for the Israelites keeping the Sabbath? What's the pattern? Right, 
what God did at creation. And this, by the way, as we mentioned previously in other lessons, this helps us to see that the days of Genesis 1 were literal days, 24-hour days, because it established the weekly pattern for Israel and their keeping of the Sabbath. Now look at verse 12, the fifth command. It says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. So the fifth command is to honor your parents. And notice the command does not simply say obey your parents. Obedience is one of the important parts or important ways that children should honor their parents, but it's not the only way. Consider what are other ways of honoring one's parents? Acting wisely and not bringing shame upon them. Speaking well about your parents, not complaining to them or about them. Helping them when they are in need. Showing prompt obedience, not simply obedience, but prompt obedience to them. And obeying them from the heart. This is all contained in honoring one's parents. And notice there is no qualifier given to this command here. God says your parents must still receive honor from you even when they sin, even when they act unwisely, or even if they don't believe in God at all. You are to honor them for the Lord's sake. But notice there is a positive promise given along with this command, and it's even affirmed in the New Testament. God says if you obey this command, your days will be prolonged in the land that God gives you. Honor your parents, you'll live longer. You'll be blessed, God says. And who wouldn't want that? Now, the next commands are very brief, and so we'll take them all together. Look at verses 13 to 16. See commands 6 to 9. God says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, remember, these are not coming from Moses here. This is God speaking, God's voice coming from the mountain to all the people. And he gives these commands. Now, the sixth commandment, God forbids taking innocent life. The seventh forbids adultery, the eighth forbids theft, and the ninth forbids giving false testimony against others. Now, if you have any background in the King James, the King James Version, its translation of verse 13 is that you shall not kill. But does God ever permit killing? He does. He does. And we've already seen this in the book of Genesis. Remember, after the flood, God said, anyone who sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. God ordained that killing, execution would take place. Capital punishment would take place as a result of those who improperly took life. Also, God ordains that Israel would fight wars. And there are certain circumstances of self-defense where killing is allowed. So, it's not right for us simply to say, oh, God said you shall not kill. There needs to be some nuance to that. It is that you shall not murder. You shall not improperly take life. And then the last command in verse 17. Verse 17, God says, you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So the last command, the tenth command, is not to covet. What does it mean to covet? It is a desire, but not all desires are bad. So what is a coveting? A 
we can describe it in this way. I'll actually give you a bunch of different ways because I think this is a concept that, that can be hard to understand. To covet is to want something so badly that you are not happy or satisfied without it. It is to lust after something, to use New Testament terminology. It is to make something an idol in heart. Now, coveting is a kind of desire. It's not necessarily wrong to desire or want something. It is wrong to want something to the point of wanting it more than God, which is what coveting or lusting or having an idol is. You can usually tell if you are coveting if you become angry, depressed, or envious over that thing. Another way to think about it, you are coveting if you sin to obtain something or if you sin when you do not obtain something. That's clearly a sign of coveting. Or another way to think about it, coveting is desire without contentment. You can desire something. There are many righteous desires a person can have or, or desires that are innocent. But if it causes you to no longer be content in God, then you are coveting. Now, God gives a few very common examples of coveting right in this command. Wanting your neighbor's house, his wife, his servants, his animals, or anything that belongs to him. If you want them in a way that causes you no longer to be content, that is coveting. But notice what's different about command number 10 versus commands 2 to 9. Can you tell, usually if there's evidence, if somebody has committed murder? Can you tell if somebody has given false testimony? Oftentimes you can because these are manifested externally. But can you always tell when people are coveting? Most of the time you can't. It's because coveting is something that takes place in the heart. It manifests in external action to be sure, but it's something that takes place in the heart. Actually, in this way, commandment number 10 is similar to commandment number one because they both focus on the heart. Oh, with these, or Danny, you want to say something? Ah, well, you're very, very good, Danny. We're actually just about to talk about that. So hang on to that comment. Yeah, let's actually uh, talk about interpretation now of what we've just seen about the Ten Commandments. A number of questions here. First, you may have noticed that Ten Commandments can be divided into two categories. What are the two categories? Commandments that have to do with one's relationship to God and commandments that have to do with relationship to other people and the things of this world. Commandments 1 to 4 all have that vertical dimension. And they don't really involve others. Your keeping of the Sabbath doesn't really involve others. You're, you're, um, you're worshiping an idol or not. But commands 5 to 10 clearly have to do with others. Now, some have suggested, because God gives two tablets to Moses, that commands 1 to 4 filled one tablet and commands 5 to 10 filled the other tablet. More likely, the two tablets were exactly the same. Because this is the idea of covenant. You give the rules, you give a copy of the rules to each party of the covenant so that they know exactly what they're supposed to keep. So one to four was probably on one side of one tablet and commands five to 10 were on the other side of that tablet. 
and there were two copies of those tablets given to emphasize that this is a covenant. Now, why do commands one to four appear first? That's right. This is to show the, the primary, yeah, that's right, to show the primary uh, aspect of obedience to God and reverence of God. If you do not have a right relationship with God, then you will not be able to have a right relationship with others. The bottom commands, they flow out of the top commands. Conversely, if you're not obeying the latter commands, if you can tell, oh man, that person is clearly coveting, or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm caught in lying or adultery, well, that's a sign that you haven't been keeping commandments one to four. Because the bottom, those, how we relate to others, it flows out of how we're relating to God. Indeed, all the commands are really interwoven with one another. And so when James says in the New Testament, in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. That actually is pretty literally true. I mean, if you are breaking commandment number seven, well, you're also breaking commandment number 10 and commandment number five and commandment number two and commandment number one. They all go together. In perfect parallel to this concept of First, primarily vertical commands having to do with God, and then horizontal commands. Secondly, dealing with man, listen to what Jesus says in the New Testament. When he was asked about which commandment of God is the greatest, Jesus says in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So even Jesus saw that there's a primary and secondary command, and the, the Ten Commandments reflect that same, that same idea. Now, Israel was forbid from worshiping idols in the second of the Ten Commandments, but how do people still worship idols today? That's right. So there is worship of self, and that usually manifests in the worshiping of other various things of this world. You don't need to have a physical image to be worshiping an idol. In fact, it's much more common today not to have a physical image, but still be an idolater. Now, it's true that images, idolatry in, in worship and in reverence of images still exist today. It's part of many religions in the world. Hinduism would be one clear example. But even in Christianity, the reverence that some groups within Christianity will show to statues and images, it's basically idolatry. You know, they'll come up with different explanations. Oh, no, I'm not really worshiping the image. I'm worshiping what the image represents. But people were making the same argument back in Israel's day and in Jesus's day. The Greeks and the Romans would have said something similar. And yet that's what Catholics and others will say today when it comes to images of Christ, Mary, or of the saints. Yeah, I saw a hand on the side. Yeah, go ahead.
Interesting. Okay. I, I wasn't aware of that, but just uh, repeating your comment, Vern, it appears that Catholics or some Catholics would kind of avoid making the second commandment about idols its own commandment, but just kind of lump it in with the first and then split the command about covenant. That's interesting. But certainly idolatry, whether you use an image or not, it is very prevalent today. And it is a form, as, as Mark was saying, of worship of self. Many common idols of our society are money, love, power, sexual pleasure, fame, popularity, success, various possessions. You can make, and you can actually see this in children most clearly, you can make something extremely unimportant an idol. Oh, I wanted that toy. You look at a kid and you're like, man, what's wrong with you? He's basically made it an idol. But you know what? As adults, we can do the same thing. Oh, I really wanted a particular dinner or, oh, I really wanted... Um, I really wanted this person to like me or something like that. That's that becomes an idol. If you love something more or equal to God, if you believe you cannot be satisfied without something, it has become an idol in your mind, a false god. You set up an image. And the Old Testament refers to these things as idols. The New Testament calls them lusts. And they are sins. God will not tolerate competition for glory with false gods whether they are physical or not. Now, in the fourth commandment, Israel is charged with keeping the Sabbath. If you know the scriptures, Israel often does not keep the Sabbath. Because you might think to yourself, oh, come on, Israel, why wouldn't you do that? I mean, a day off from work? Isn't that like the greatest command ever? Why would Israel be tempted and frequently fail to keep the Sabbath? Uh, fail to, or they would be tempted to not keep the Sabbath fail to keep it. Why? It's a little bit of what we said when we talked about why people would go out to gather manna on the Sabbath when God said, don't do it. There won't be any manna there. Or when God says, don't leave any of the manna over until morning. It's because we live in a society of abundance where you don't have to worry about the future because you can always just go to the grocery store or whatever it is, but they didn't live in that kind of society. To not work on the Sabbath, that was a big risk potentially. Ah, but we need to keep working if we're going to survive, to get the money that we need, or whatever it is. So they'd be tempted and often would yield to the temptation to not rest on the Sabbath. They would rather work. They would rather rely on what they are able to produce themselves than rely on God. Now, do Christians need to keep the Sabbath today? Well, the answer to this is yes or no, depending on what you mean. Though the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath was just one of a greater series of ceremonial laws that were given by God to Israel and that would ultimately serve as pictures of the coming salvation in Messiah. When Christ came, we saw the fullness of what these Old Testament ceremonies pictured. And therefore, these ceremonies were no longer necessary. Just as we as Christians do not sacrifice animals today to cover sin, because Jesus has once and for all covered sin, we don't need any other covering. We also do not follow dietary laws versus about clean versus unclean animals, because Christ has made all foods clean for us. So also we do not keep the ritual Sabbath because in Jesus, his people have entered a greater rest 
than simply not working one day of a week. And that is the rest of God himself. To explain this a little more, and to borrow what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, as Christians, we are no longer working to perfectly keep God's law because Christ did it for us. Therefore, we rest in Christ's righteousness. And as Hebrews says, if we persevere by faith in Christ, we will also enter the blessed eternal rest of God, with God. So you could say, in a sense, that Christians do keep the Sabbath, but it's a different Sabbath. We keep and enjoy a greater Sabbath than the Jews did, because Christ has become for us our Sabbath, and we rest continually in him. But you might say, well, I thought that Sunday was the Christian's new Sabbath. And to be fair, in Christian history, there have been many who have treated Sunday as if it were a new Sabbath. And they even forbid work or play or various activities on Sundays. But to make Sunday the new Sabbath would be to contradict the very clear words of the scriptures themselves. But the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or to respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So there it is, right there, explicit. Paul says, no one can call you out for not keeping the Sabbath. That was just a shadow. The fullness has come. Now, if you want to set aside Sunday as a special day of worship to God, that's fine. Just you don't have to do that particular day. And you don't have to keep it the way the Jews kept their Sabbath. It is interesting, and I'm sure Pastor Ravi mentioned this. There was a certain reverence that quickly became attached to Sundays. Even in Revelation 1.10, Sunday is referred to as the Lord's Day. So when Christians were thinking about special days for getting together, they often got together on the Lord's Day. But this is not the same as keeping the fourth commandment. We need to understand that. To say this, or to make this more clear, Romans 14, Paul says further in Romans 14, verses 5 and 6, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So if you want to set aside a certain day as the Sabbath to God, you can, but you're not required to. Now, does this all mean then that you don't need to be with Christians? You don't need to be in church on Sundays? Well, no, that's a wrong application, but for a different reason. Because the scriptures also tell us in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10 verses 23 to 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You need to be with the assembly of your fellow believers, and your assembly usually gathers on Sundays. So if you're to obey what Hebrews says, you need to be there. Don't forsake the assembly. Of course, your assembly gathers on other days of the week, too. And if you are able, you want to be there as well, because that's part of where the ministry of the church actually takes place. 
So lots to say here about the Sabbath. One final thought. There is still practical wisdom in taking time off each week not to work. This not only helps you to refresh and recharge yourself, but it is also an expression of the same belief that Israel was to express, that God is able to provide for you even if you do not work. You know, our society admires workaholism. Now, sometimes it speaks against it, but we're, we admire hard workers. But workaholism, it is a sin. And it's a sign that you actually don't trust God because you will just work, work, work to the neglect of your other responsibilities, to the neglect of your family often and, and others that you need to love. Now, we could say more about this, but we need to keep keep moving for the sake of time. To get back to what Danny said earlier, did God intend for these Ten Commandments to be obeyed only externally or both in action and in heart? And clearly, the answer is the latter. These are to be both inwardly obeyed and outwardly obeyed. And how do we know this? As Danny mentioned, we have Christ's words in the New Testament. He talks about, hey, if you lust in your heart or if you get angry in your heart, sinful anger, it's just like murder and adultery. But Jesus was not giving a new spin on the Ten Commandments or on the Old Testament law when he said such things. These things were always there. And we can see this because of commands one and commands ten in the Ten Commandments. Were these commands about covening or about loving and um, worshiping God? These have to do with the heart. So clearly all of the commands have to do with the heart. And it's only logical, right? If it is wrong to actually kill someone, then the desire to kill someone must be wrong as well. To, de to desire to do evil, how could that be a good thing? So the Ten Commandments, and really all the commands of God, they always had an inward aspect to them. Jesus is just reemphasizing that in his Sermon on the Mount. Yes, yeah, Sermon on the Mount. Now, how should we understand the Ten Commandments in relationship to the rest of God's rules? Because let's face it, God gave Israel many other commands besides these. And many of those commands have serious consequences. Commands not listed as part of the Ten Commandments, yet if you don't keep them, God says you are to be put to death. So we cannot simply say that the Ten Commandments are the most important or the most serious commands. No, there are other important and serious commands. So how do the Ten Commandments relate to the rest of the laws given to Israel? What would you say? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, certainly these are, these are unique in that they're spoken by God himself. They are the words of the covenant. But I think we can also say that the other, other parts of the law, they also are the words of the covenant. They also are the covenant that Israel is to keep. So it's not merely that these are covenant and the rest are not. How else can we understand this? Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, can you say that one more time? Oh, right. Right, right. I think that's probably the best way to understand it. You could see the Ten Commandments as an introduction or foundation or summary of the rest of the commands that are given to Israel. Because let's face it, when we look, if you look at Exodus 21 to 24 and you look at those more specific commands, they're just different versions of what God is giving in the Ten Commandments. 
It's kind of like this is the law in brief. Actually, the, more, the briefest version is what Jesus says in the New Testament, those two commands. But the covenant that Israel's to keep, it is summarized. It, you get a framework for it right in the Ten Commandments. This is not to say the other commandments are not important. They are. They're just further applications or versions of what God gives in the Ten Commandments. I think that's the best way for us to understand the Ten Commandments in relation to the rest of the Old Testament law. But why give these to Israel? Why give these rules, these Ten Commandments, this covenant? What was the purpose? Well, there are several purposes, and I'm just going to point out four of them to you. Or actually, I want to also ask this question in terms of even the rules that we are to keep. Why does God give us commands as Christians? He gave Israel commands, gives us commands. Why? One reason is to do us good. God's laws are, are not to make life terrible and hard for us. They're actually meant to do us good because they are wise and they bring blessing. And this doesn't happen necessarily mysteriously or supernaturally, though God does also bless us in that way. But the laws themselves are a blessing to those who keep them. If you want to live a wise life just on a practical basis, then follow the commands of God, because God has wise and good commands. So when God says, you should love your neighbor, or you should love your wife, or you should serve in the church. That's for your good. One of the reasons God gives his commands and why he gave Israel commands was to do them good. And attached to that is the second reason, and that is to show God's character. Here's a very important truth that we all need to realize. God's commands are not arbitrary. It can't be like, oh, you know, God just happened to say that murder was wrong, but, you know, I could conceive of a universe where murder is actually a good thing. Well, that would be to think of God's commands as arbitrary, but it's not so. God's commands are what they are because of who God is. Really, the commands are just reflections of himself. They're applications of who God is. To see it another way, God's law gives us insight into the very heart of God. You see who he is what he loves, what he hates, how he seeks to bless good and punish evil, what kind of reverence he deserves. And this is why God's law is so good, because it reflects him, and he is good. So how could any of God's commands ever fail to be good when they are given by someone who's good, and they're given as a reflection of that goodness? This is also why, and perhaps you're already thinking of this, when our minds and our consciences are trained by God's word, we cannot help but affirm that God's laws are sweet and good. This is why the psalmist says, I love your law. And I'm like, oh, but wait, psalmist, you've got a lot of difficult laws to keep there in that Old Testament. You sure you love them? He says, I do, because I see God in them. I see God's ways. I see God's nature reflected in them. Now, we should know that God does express his wonderful character via his commands, sometimes in different ways. We have to face the fact that there were some laws given to Israel that are not given to Christians, and some laws given to Christians that were not asked of Israel. This is not to say that God's character has changed, but in, at different times, God says, this is the way I'm going to have my character reflected, and other times, this is the way I'm going to have my character reflected. I think of some of the laws given about 
divorce in the Old Testament. You say, oh, I thought God hated divorce. Why did he give these laws about divorce? Well, in the Old Testament, you can still see the goodness of God in the divorce laws because these were meant to regulate and as much as possible protect people from being abused by divorce. People were going to divorce, even though that was not God's design for marriage. And God said, well, when it happens, though it shouldn't happen, this is the way it must happen in order to, to protect as much as possible usually women who are being divorced. And you can see a similar goodness, though we don't have the same laws, and the laws given to Christians when it comes to divorce. That's because God doesn't change, even though he has determined he would require of certain people in certain times certain commands. Now, so the law, God's laws are given to do us good. They're given to show us God. They're also given to show us the standard that God requires. This is a third purpose of the law. As God reveals his goodness to us in the law, he is also establishing a standard. And as we grapple with that standard, as we try to keep that standard, we realize God is completely holy. We ought to be holy as he is, but we are not. Even though all God's, are God's laws are good and we ought to keep them perfectly all the time, the fact is we simply don't. If we didn't have God's commands, we still would be responsible to be holy, but we wouldn't realize that just how much we are not holy. God shows us what true holiness, true goodness, true perfection is in his law, but we're not able to reach that standard. And this was certainly obvious in Israel's case, right? Just less than 40 days after receiving the covenant, they're breaking it in a pretty egregious way. But God never intended for Israel or for us to be accepted, made righteous, justified by keeping God's laws. No one can perfectly keep God's laws. It is the right standard. It's what we ought to keep, but none of us can reach it. This is God's purpose in the law. It is to set that standard even though it's one we cannot keep. And why? Because of the fourth purpose. God's law is to do us good, is to show us himself, is to establish the proper standard, but it also is to point us to God's mercy in Christ. We don't have time to go through it right now, but Galatians 3, verses 21 to 26, it goes on to talk about how the law was never meant by God to justify, but it was to function like a tutor to lead us to Christ. As we see our failure to keep God's good law, we say, I need someone to make me right with God. And of course, God, the only way for that to happen is through Jesus Christ. Paul says something similar in Romans 3, Romans 3 verses 19 to 26. Again, we can't go through that. But he says, the law would never justify anybody, but the law shut up everybody under sin so that they might see that righteousness can only come by Christ. And that is that is transmitted to us by faith, which is why we say salvation is by faith, apart from works, by grace through faith alone. So the Ten Commandments and God's commands in general, they were always meant to show us that we cannot meet God's good and required standard of righteousness. It's only on the basis of mercy. The law is actually showing us it is only on the basis of God's mercy that we can be made right with him. And God has extended such mercy in the work of his son. Now, this was true for Israel. 
It's not like, okay, Israel was justified by works and we're justified by faith. No, it's the same for them. They also were justified by faith, apart from works. They looked forward to the provision of God's mercy, even though they didn't have all the details. It was by faith in God's provision that they were saved. We look back with many more of the details because we've actually seen and we have the record of Christ's coming. Jesus suffered for the sins of those who believe in him, who believe in him as their Lord and Savior, and he gives them his perfect righteousness so they might be holy and justified before God. And then, God, or, or connected with that, God puts his Holy Spirit in those who believe in him. He makes them alive, and he enables them to be obedient where they weren't obedient before, where they couldn't be obedient before. For us as Christians, we do keep God's commands. But not out of fear of, oh, if I don't do this, I won't be saved. Rather, we are motivated by the love for our Savior who has already kept the law on our behalf. And though we do gratefully obey and keep God's commands, we don't do this perfectly. We all have to admit this. We don't do this perfectly. Yet, it should be characteristic of believers. And it should be a, a gradual process of improvement, sanctification. We are to become more and more like Christ as we see God's grace in our life. So the Ten Commandments and God's laws as a whole, they have several purposes, and we need to keep them all in mind. They do, the commands themselves are good. They show us the goodness of God and his character. They show us God's right and holy standard, but they also point us to mercy and salvation in Christ. Now, Again, we could say a lot more about the Ten Commandments. And when it comes to application, we could explore application in many different areas. But as our time is winding down today, let me just give a couple questions to you to stimulate your thinking when it comes to how you apply what we've heard and read about the Ten Commandments. Number one, how do you view the Ten Commandments in relation to yourself? How do you regard the commands of God? Even the Ten Commandments, are they a way for you to become saved? A basis for comparing your own goodness with others or a clear evidence that you need Christ to be made acceptable to God. Because you have to ask yourself, do you keep the Ten Commandments, both externally and internally? If you're honest with yourself, you know you don't. And that's why you need Christ. Number two, if you are in Christ, do you now delight to keep God's commandments? Of course, you don't keep them perfectly, but it's obedience to God's commands even what's written in the Ten Commandments, does that mark your life? And if not, what do you misunderstand about God? How is it that you see these commandments as not being good or not reflecting God's character? Do you misunderstand God? Do you see God's great heart reflected in his rules? You see his desire to bless you in his commands. And then number three, how might you use God's law in preaching the gospel. Now, ultimately, the gospel can be boiled down to bad news and good news. And part of the bad news is, look, here's God's great righteous law. We ought to keep it, but none of us have. We can get very specific with people. We can say, look, here's a summary of God's good laws and Ten Commandments. But have you kept these? Have you kept them perfectly all the time, internally and externally? And again, if people are honest, and if we are honest, we, we know that we haven't. And that's why... We need Christ. You have to use the bad news 
of how our inability and our and our willful decision not to keep God's laws has led to our condemnation and our need for rescuing Christ. You know, people make a, a lot of error today when they, they try and share about the love of God, but they never share about the holiness or the wrath or the law of God. We need the law to lead us to Christ. It's that tutor. And so it is even when we share the gospel. Many people think they are good enough for God. But the law shows them and us, no, on our own, we are not. So that needs to even be part of how we proclaim the gospel. Now, again, if you have comments or questions more on what we've said today, please email me. But that's all we have time for this week. Next week, we'll get to that event that we've already alluded to. Right after receiving this covenant, saying they'll keep it all, Israel turns to flagrant idolatry. The real question is, how will God respond? And if he's not going to destroy them, why not? I'll talk about that next time. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your law. Thank you for your commands. God, there was a time where we thought they were burdensome. Maybe even today, Lord, we're tempted to think, oh, this is so difficult, God. Why would you have to do it this way? Why can't I have this sin? Why can't I have this lust? But God, when we see the wisdom of your word, we say, what a fool I was. No, Lord, all your commands are good. They point us to Christ. They show us your goodness. They're meant to be a blessing to us. And they show the righteous standard. God, for those who, who have not yet found shelter in Christ, I pray that they would, even those at Calvary today. And God, for those who do know Christ, I pray that they would know you in such a way that they delight to keep all of your laws. Of course, God, they and I will not do it perfectly, but help us to progress so that we might know, of your, know more of your blessing, know more of you, and rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You again, sir.